No other book has so profoundly impacted so many lives as the Bible. Welcome to Simply the Bible, the Through the Bible teaching program of Pastor Daryl Zachman of Calvary Chapel, Treasure Valley. Today we look at Psalms 13 and 14 where David grieves over his enemy but prays for God's enlightenment. He also considers man's depravity and God's salvation. We hope you'll join us as Pastor Daryl continues in the Psalms on Simply the Bible. One of the beautiful things about the Psalms is that so often David begins heavy-hearted, but he ends on a joyful note because his faith has been restored in the Lord. Such is Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? This has been called by some the how long psalm because David says it four times. Behind that exclamation is a strong desire in David's heart for God's deliverance. Perhaps his desire has given way to impatience, and we are all prone to do that when we're motivated by a strong desire. David says, will you forget me forever? Now, David knew that God would not forget him. How can God ever forget his children? But it seemed that God had forgotten David's cause. It felt like the Lord's face was hidden from David because David's prayer had gone unanswered. And maybe he had prayed earnestly, but it felt like the heavens were brass and his prayers were ricocheting off them back upon his own head. Have you ever felt that way when you've gone to pray? David's patience was wearing thin. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? David's soul was erupting like a volcano. His anxious thoughts and fears were now his counselors. And that's a miserable place to be because such worry thoughts choke out your vitality and your productivity. David had heart sorrow daily. It was like a heavy weight of depression. Every day when David got out of bed and he carried it with him throughout the day, agonizing. He was tormented by his enemy who was exalted over him, troubling him, perhaps even oppressing and persecuting him. Indeed, it was a heavy burden to bear. Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. David was concerned that if this didn't change, it might just take him out. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. So David cries out to God that he would hear his plea and take up his cause. And he, he prays that his eyes would be enlightened. Now, when we are in the throes of spiritual warfare, a weight of darkness comes upon us and we're confused. We can't even see the next step. Our steps seem uncertain and there's no foothold and we doubt ourselves. Like someone traversing a mountain slope, one bad step could end your life. And of course, the enemy is always there to remind you of that. So David prays, enlighten my eyes, show me the way, help me see the next step, show me what to do, Lord. Charles Spurgeon comments on this verse, 
let the eye of my faith be clear that I may see my God in the dark. Let my eye of watchfulness be wide open lest I be entrapped or fall into the pit, you know. Let the eye of my understanding be illuminated to see the right way. David's purpose in all this is so that his enemy would be silenced and not be able to boast over him, saying, I have prevailed against David, nor be able to rejoice when they see David having to move from his firm position. Verse 5, but I have trusted in your mercy, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David makes his final appeal to the Lord saying, I have trusted in your mercy. And that's always a good appeal because God is merciful and he desires mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy is not getting the justice we deserve. But grace goes one step further. That's getting the good we don't deserve. David knew that he wasn't perfect, but he was trusting in God to be merciful to him. And he knew that he would be because he knew that God was merciful. Even though David was heavy hearted over his enemies, he rejoiced in the Lord's salvation. He knew his name was written in the book of life. Hey, do you know that? Jesus encouraged his disciples to rejoice that their names were written in heaven do you know that nothing in this world, not COVID-19, not divorce, not financial hardship, nor rebellious children, nor even the death of a loved one, nothing can take away the fact that your name is written in heaven. If you have repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ for your salvation, that's a never-ending wellspring of joy for everybody who believes. Things might get rough in this world, they will. But rejoice, because you're not going to hell. Charles Spurgeon once said that if you are alive and not in hell, then you have no good reason not to be thankful. Rejoice in the Lord always, said the Apostle Paul. And again, I say rejoice, probably because we need to be reminded. Finally, this led David to sing to the Lord because God had dealt so bountifully with him. God took him as a boy from the sheep fields and made him king of Israel. God had blessed him with wealth and everything a man could desire. But most importantly, God had blessed David with a right and loving relationship with himself. So how could David keep from singing? We could say that David began this psalm in a minor key, but ends in a major key, rejoicing in the Lord. And that is why I so love the psalms. Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. David here describes the atheist, the one who denies the very existence of God. There is no greater folly than that. He denies the existence of God because he is a fool inwardly. How can anyone look at all creation, the heavens above, the earth below, and the miracle of the human body and not testify that this is the handiwork of a wonderful and intelligent, omnipotent creator. The problem with the atheist is never intellectual. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. If his affections were set on truth and righteousness, then he would have no trouble believing in God. But because his heart dislikes what is morally good and right, 
And he objects to having to give an account to a moral God who is the judge of all the earth and the punisher of the sinner who does not repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is easier for him to simply dismiss God from his mind and then claim that he doesn't believe that God exists. But once again, I will quote Charles Spurgeon, as denying the existence of fire does not prevent its burning a man who is in it, so doubting the existence of God will not stop the judge of all the earth from destroying the rebel who breaks his laws. If you are an atheist, you may not believe in God, but let me tell you, God believes in you. He loves you. He made you in his image, and he desires to have a relationship with you. And if you will repent of the folly of denying God's existence and come humbly to him and ask him for his forgiveness, he will forgive you. He'll love you. He'll save you. He'll write your name in the book of life in heaven. Now, if you're trying to witness to an atheist, let me just say that the only remedy for such a person is to simply aim at the heart. If you argue against the reasons he throws at you, then you will accomplish nothing. Believe me, I've tried. For an atheist can raise more objections in an hour than you can answer in seven years. But if you will instead speak of the all-conquering love of Jesus, demonstrated by his willingness to die on the cross for our sins, then by God's grace and the power of that gospel, the atheist soul may in fact be saved. David continues, they are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Wow. You know, the Apostle Paul quotes this in Romans 3 to make the case for the universal depravity of man. Now, let's take a look at this. It says that they are corrupt. The Hebrew word describes an object in a complete state of ruin. They do abominable works. Here, the word describes something detestable or repulsive. David says, no one does good, no, not even one. No one understands God. They don't understand his ways or his righteousness. No one seeks God. If they would seek him, then they would find him, but they don't even care to seek him. All have turned aside from the way. And here David says, they have together become corrupt. That word translated corrupt means morally depraved or perverse. They sort of get the mob mentality, but the mob mentality is morally depraved. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge." You see, these workers of iniquity have no knowledge of God or his ways. How can they when they deny his existence? And then they go about eating up God's people like bread. I think of the atheistic college professors that just love to chew up these college students who come in bright-eyed with faith in God, and they just desire to just chew up their faith and spit them out. And yet, 
they still have great fear when it comes to death. They can't do anything about the fear of death. There is that fear of death in every single person. And until we come to the cross of Jesus Christ and know that we have atonement for our sins, that fear stays with the atheist or the agnostic or anyone who is unbelieving in Jesus Christ. And yet they see that God is with the righteous. Like the people of Jericho who saw that God parted the Red Sea and then parted the Jordan River for the Israelites and their hearts melted with fear because they could see, oh my goodness, God is with these people and we are toast. They try to shame the counsel of the poor. They try to make the poor look like idiots. And yet, the Lord is the poor person's refuge. Now, it's not talking about economically poor here. It's talking about being poor in spirit, being perhaps weak in the eyes of the world, and yet trusting in God humbly. And the Lord is the refuge, the shelter, the strong tower for the poor in spirit. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. And again, just this exclamation, praying for God's salvation. Bring it on, Lord. Bring your salvation. Bring back the captives. Listen, remember Jesus said that whoever sins is a slave to sin. There's a lot of people who have been taken captive by sin, and we're praying, God, bring him back. Bring him back into the fold. Bring him back into your house, Lord, so that we might rejoice, that Jacob and Israel may be glad that the church of God may rejoice when the prodigals come home and we can kill the fatted calf and we can rejoice together. You've been listening to Simply the Bible, the Through the Bible teaching program of Pastor Daryl Zachman of Calvary Chapel, Treasure Valley. For more information about our church, please visit our website at calvarytv.org. To listen to other episodes, go to 941thevoice.com or check out our podcast on iTunes or Spotify. If you have any questions or comments, please contact us through our website. Next time, we'll look at Psalms 15 and 16, where David lists the characteristics required to dwell in God's presence and the marvelous joys of being there. We hope you'll join us as we continue in the Psalms on Simply the Bible.